That's uh, truly a, a fitting song uh, for our vision for 2024, because as we're praying for God to use us to reach our wider community, we have to first be holy in our own personal lives, right? We have to love our kids, love our families well, and that will spill over and flow over to our community. But it starts with in our heart. It starts the holiness in, in our heart that we need. And today we're looking at the perfect Holy One, Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 5. We're looking at Jesus is the best priest. Jesus is the best priest. Uh, if you're a kid or if you're just taking notes and you like to, something to keep track of, key word today is priest. I might say that 45 times, I don't know, but if you want to track that down, you can mark it. We'll have three main points today in Hebrews chapter 5. First, we'll see that Jesus is the best priest because he is perfect, meaning he is holy, he is sinless. Second, he is resurrected, he rose from the dead. And then third, he is the God-man, truly God, truly man. That's why he's the best. He's the best priest because of those three things. Number two, Jesus is the best priest because he is humble. And this is amazing. Usually when you think of somebody who's the best, you don't think of them being humble, right? But Jesus is the best, and he is also humble, which makes him even better. Number three, Jesus is the best priest because he obeyed through suffering. He obeyed through suffering. And we'll look at more about that at the end of the sermon. So as we're looking at Jesus is the best, I thought about this week how we, uh, me and some guys watched a football game uh, this, this past week. And I just noticed how talented, there's so young guys in college, how talented they are. They're really athletic. They're really good. Um, and it's, there's always the debate of who's the best, right? Who's the best athlete? Who's the best basketball player? Who's the best football player? And sometimes what people do in arguing for who's the best, they say, well, your guy's good. He has a lot of yards. He makes a lot of touchdowns. But look who he played against. He played against garbage teams, right? He, he had an easy schedule, a weak schedule. My guy did all these things, and he played against the best of the best. He had the best competition. And so sometimes, you know, someone might say, well, Jesus may look like he's good. He may look like he's the best, but he had a weak schedule. He had an easy life. Of course not. Jesus had a difficult life. It was not easy. He was tempted in every way. He faced persecution. His friends deserted him. And then at the end of his life, he took on the sins of the world on his shoulders and took the punishment for that. I would say that is the worst suffering anyone could ever experience. And Jesus did all that while obeying God perfectly. He truly is the best. And so G Hebrews 5 explains Jesus being the best priest this way, starting in Hebrews 5, verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so first thing that it's doing here is it's comparing Jesus to the priest in the Old Testament. And it's saying the priest in the Old Testament were taken from among men. And so Jesus also is taken from among men because he became human, right? And so Jesus human is just like the priest in the Old Testament in that he was taken from among men. And what was he supposed to do as the priest? 
He was supposed to represent God to the people, right? The people to God. He was supposed to be that intermediary, the person that goes between the people and God the Father. And so how did he do that? The priests in the Old Testament offered gifts and sacrifices to God to cleanse the people from their sins. Jesus did the same thing, but he offered the best gift, the once and for all sacrifice, his life. So while Jesus is like the priests in the Old Testament in many ways, he's human and offered sacrifices um, he was that intermediary. He's the best because he offers the best sacrifice. And we'll see in verse 2 that Jesus is also like the priest in the Old Testament because they also were able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also clothed with weakness. And so what it's saying is the priest in the Old Testament, they could deal gently with the people because they had sin too. They sinned, and they were tempted, and they fell, and so they could relate to the people. They're like, I know what it's like. I'm, I'm offering sacrifices for your sins on your behalf in the temple. I can relate to you. But you know what? If you know anybody, if you've ever met a sinful person, which you have, uh, though they can relate to you, sinful people also have the tendency to look down on you, right? Even though they're sinful just as you, they say, well, your sins are worse than mine. I'm better than you. And so a lot of times, that's what priests would do. They would say, they, they could maybe relate to them sometimes, but not perfectly. But here's the good news of Jesus. He can relate to us perfectly. He never looks at us in condemnation. Instead, he's, you, if you're in Jesus, if you trusted in him, he perfectly relates to you. He is perfectly compassionate. He is perfect love towards you. He is never seeking revenge or saying, oh, you're not good enough. No, he says, you're perfect because I died for you. I died in your place. So Jesus can perfectly relate to us. And as we saw last week, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so he can relate to us that way because he was tempted in every way. And But since human priests do have sin, we look in verse 3. It talks about that. It says, because of this, because of their weakness, because of their sin, these priests in the Old Testament must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. So in other words, because the priests in the Old Testament were sinful, they couldn't just go into the temple and offer sacrifice for everybody else. They had to first offer a sacrifice to cleanse themselves. And this is what really sets Jesus apart from the priests in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus was perfect. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for, for everyone else. Instead, he was uh, completely different. And Hebrews 7 talks about Jesus being different from the priests in this way. If you want to flip over to Hebrews 7, we'll talk a little bit about Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. <clears throat> Hebrews 7, 23 says this. Now many have become Levitical priests. It's talking about priests in the Old Testament. Since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. So you might ask, why are there so many priests in the Old Testament? Well, easy. People died and they needed more priests. They, couldn't, they didn't live forever. And so Jesus is different than this because Jesus, though he died, he rose again. He didn't need to train other priests after him. He is the final priest. He is the final intermediary between us and God the Father. It says this in 24 about Jesus. It says, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is the best and final priest that goes between us and God the Father. There is no pastor, there is no priest on earth, there is no TV preacher that you need to get to God. You can go to God the Father 
through Jesus. That's the only way you can get through God the Father is through Jesus. He is the best and final priest because he is sinless and he was raised from the dead. Look in verse 25. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Save completely. There is no partial salvation. There is no I'm almost saved or I'm getting there. It's you're either completely saved or you're not. And because Jesus died for your sins, if you trust in him as your God, Savior, and King, you are completely saved because he is always living to intercede for you. He's always living. He's resurrected from the dead. He lives eternally, and he intercedes for you. Now, what intercede for the kids here and maybe some adults? Intercede is a big word. So let me give you a story. <clears throat> Imagine you're a kid going through the store, and you're on the arts and crafts aisle, and you see this big bottle of paint that you just really want to take off the shelf and look at. <clears throat> but your mom says, no, Josh, don't touch that bottle of paint. It's breakable, and I don't want to pay for that, all right? Well, you really want to take the bottle of paint, and when she's not looking, you grab it, and you're looking at it. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing bottle of black paint. Well, you're thinking of daydreaming about all the things you could paint with this, and as you're daydreaming, it slips out of your hands, onto the shelf, breaks, onto the floor, paint is everywhere. Your worst nightmare is coming true. <laughs> And you look up, though, and the good news is your mom didn't see it. She already rounded the aisle. But you've, your mom has taught you, and you've learned, and you've committed your life to Jesus, and you know you, you, you have to repent of this. You have to come clean. You have to tell your mom. You have to get this cleaned up. All right? And so you go to find your mom on the next aisle, and you say, Mom, I dropped the paint. I know I shouldn't have touched it. You told me not to, but I just wanted to hold the bottle of paint. And she's like, all right, well... Thanks for telling me. We got to go clean it up now, and you're going to have to pay for that bottle that you broke. And as you go back to the aisle, the paint has been cleaned. And there's a man standing there and says, Don't worry. Uh, talk to, talks to your mom and says, Don't worry about it. I cleaned it up. I paid for the bottle. And so that's an, he was an intermediary. He talked to your mom. He said, I cleaned it up. I paid the price so you can go free. Jesus does the same thing for us. He dies on the cross and he says to God the Father, I got him. I died for his sins. He is clean. I paid his price. He can go free. Jesus is the intermediary between us and God the Father forever. He's always talking to God the Father saying, look, they are clean. I paid the price. I died for their sins. That is Jesus, our best eternal final priest. And Jesus is the only person that can do that for you. No one else can do it. You can't do it for yourself. You can't hire someone else to do it. You can't do enough good things to intercede for yourself. Only Jesus. Look in verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins, and then for those, the, the people, he did this once for all time when he offered himself. Jesus didn't have to offer multiple sacrifices daily. He did it once and for all to save us completely. So trust in his sacrifice. Trust in Jesus and his sacrifice 
alone. He is the best and the final priest that you need. He is the best and final priest that the world needs, that people in our community need, that kids at Wakeland Elementary need. They need to hear this good news. Second, Jesus is not only the best priest because of his perfection and sinlessness and resurrection, he's also the best because he was humble. Look back in Hebrews 5, verse 4. <coughs> it says, it's talking about the priest in the Old Testament. <coughs> it says, no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. And so Aaron was a guy in the Old Testament. He was Moses' brother. And God appointed Aaron to the priesthood. And so they're going to be picking up on this thing that God appoints the people. They don't appoint themselves, right? Because it says in verse 5, In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, quoting Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have become your father. And again, also says in verse 6, in another place, quoting from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So looking back at Psalm 2-7 that he quotes, he's quoted this psalm before when it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. Remember, this is a public declaration. This is a confirmation that Jesus truly is the son of God. He truly is the Messiah when God raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, speaks of Jesus' confirmation as the Son of God this way at his resurrection. It says, And Jesus was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus was always the eternal Son of God, a member of the Trinity, existing, creating all things. But as his resurrection, he was appointed, he was confirmed, he was saying, Everybody in the world, look, he is the Son of God. Because I raised him from the dead. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus didn't appoint himself to this position. He trusted in God the Father. Jesus was humble. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Here's just one example. John 8, 54. Jesus talking here says, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, My glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. So Jesus didn't exalt himself. He waited for God to exalt him, for God to shine the light on him. And that's truly amazing that Jesus would be humble to do this. And this is similar to the priest in the Old Testament. Just how the, the priests in the Old Testament were humble and they did not exalt themselves, but God exalted them. This happened to Jesus. And he, he quotes Psalm 2 for that example, and he also quotes Psalm 110. Looking back in Hebrews 5, 6, it says, In another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Mount Kizedek. <clears throat> so just as God appointed Aaron as a priest, he's saying God the Father also appointed Jesus as a priest, but the best priest, a better priest, a priest like a guy named Mount Kizedek. That is a mouthful. Uh, he's a, a priest king, one of the, the first priest king, both a priest and a king in the Old Testament. I preached on Genesis 14 a couple months ago, and I preached on Psalm 110 a couple months ago as well, if you want to go back and look at those in more detail. And there's, you can have a whole, there's books and dissertations written on Melchizedek. But the main point here is that Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, 110, serve as evidence that Jesus is truly the Messiah. 
He's saying Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is in a continuation with the Old Testament. He is not in contradiction to the Old Testament. This is how the Messiah is supposed to act. He's not supposed to exalt himself. Because you could probably talk to a skeptic or talk to somebody that doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Son of God. And they might say, well, why didn't Jesus exalt himself? Right? Why didn't Jesus become king of the world right then when he came to live? Well, he was in continuation with the Old Testament prophecies. He was not going to exalt himself. He was going to be exalted at his resurrection by God the Father. He was going to be a humble servant Messiah. And so especially this is especially uh, powerful if you have uh, friends that are Jewish or people that really value the Old Testament. Take them to the book of Hebrews. And they, go through and walk with them. Read along the book of Hebrews with them. And they will always be showing how Jesus is connected to the Old Testament. Is connected to the Hebrew scriptures. And so that would be a starting point for them to see Jesus is really the Messiah. Jesus is really the Son of God. He is, he became human. He was humble. And as followers of Jesus, we should imitate Jesus' humbleness here. Just remember, the God of the universe became a human, lived a normal life. He humbled himself to the point of death. Could we not serve others? Could we not humble ourselves? Could we not give up some preference or some opinion for the sake of someone else? Philippians 2 makes this point for us, this application. Philippians 2.4 says, Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who was existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. So and as, as a human, how did Jesus live? He lived humbly, but he also lived perfectly obediently through suffering. Our last point here, number three, Jesus is the best priest because he obeyed through suffering. Look in Hebrews 5, 7. Since during his earthly life, this is, this is going to be a key phrase to focus in on, I was talking about Jesus' earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So I want to point out two things here. First, focusing in on that phrase, in his earthly life, we have biblical grounds to distinguish between Jesus' earthly life and his heavenly life. Because it can get kind of complicated talking about Jesus, because you talk about Jesus as God, how could God suffer? How could God learn? How could God die? Right? Like, how could talking about these things in, if you talk about it in Jesus' heavenly life, it doesn't make much sense. But we can start to wrap our heads around Jesus and his actions if we realize. He also had an earthly life. He became human. And so as a human, during his earthly life, he was able to suffer. He was able to learn. He was able to grow, right? And so as in part of his humanity, we, this is why we can see him praying and crying out to God the Father. Again, showing his humility and dependence on a hum, as a human. And also, we can see him crying out, shows that he is fully human because he didn't want to suffer, we see him cry out, Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the crucifixion. He says, if there's any other way that I can die for the sins of humanity, if there's any way I can take away their sins, is, let me do that. Because he recognized the pain that he's about to go through. 
And like any human, he's, he doesn't want to go through it. But he says, but not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus willingly became human. He willingly went to the cross out of his love for you and me. But it was painful. It was painful, but he went through it. He trusted in God, his Father, completely, knowing that God the Father was able to raise him from the dead. As it says at the end of verse 7, with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So God the Father answered Jesus' prayer and raised him from the dead because Jesus was perfectly holy. He feared and trusted God in the perfect reverence that God required. God raised him from the dead to declare that Jesus is my son. He did live perfectly. He did fulfill every scripture about the Messiah. He is the one. And part of this perfect life included his obedience through suffering. Look at verse 8. He says, although he was the son, so he's rec- the author of Hebrews is recognizing, although Jesus is the eternal son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Because again, remember, how can God learn, right? If Jesus is God, how can he learn? Well, be- because he became human. He had different experiences. As in his heavenly life, Jesus never experienced pain or suffering. But in his earthly life, he did. And therefore, that experience of suffering, he learned obedience in a different way that was not possible in his heavenly life. And this can kind of be a reflection for us in our lives. And we look at our suffering. We look at the things that we go through. And the question is always why. And I can't give you an answer for everything. But, but maybe here's a beginning point to consider. Perhaps, maybe like Jesus, Jesus suffered died on the cross, and that led to being the, the salvation of people being made possible, right? That suffering was for a reason. It had a purpose. He learned obedience through this suffering. And so perhaps maybe God could do something similar with us. Maybe you could learn obedience through a suffering that you couldn't have learned else, elsewhere. Maybe you couldn't or wouldn't have trusted in Jesus the way you do if you didn't experience the suffering. Yes, the suffering still hurts, and it doesn't take it away. But maybe this perspective can begin to start transform your mind and say, yes, God is still good. He still loves me, and I'm learning through this, and I'm going to follow after him. Jesus does love us. He, he surely does, because it is evident that he suffered and died in our place. Look in verse 9. It says, after he was perfected, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So this language of perfection here, it's not as Jesus worked his way up to moral perfection. Remember, he was sinless, right? So by perfected, it means... (coughs) Sorry, Jared. (coughs) All right, we'll get through this. I'm telling you, I feel fine right up until this moment, you know. So Jesus does love us, he, but when it talks about him being perfected, what does that mean here? Because he was sinless. It means that Jesus completed his mission. It means it came to fruition. It was finished. He obeyed God's will perfectly to the very end. He fulfilled the scriptural prom- prophecies concerning his earthly life. 
Jesus was perfect, and he was the only qualified sacrifice for our sins. Jesus uses a similar word, a kind of a synonym, right before his death in John 19.30. He doesn't say, it has been perfected, but what does he say? It is finished. It is completed. His earthly ministry is done. He fulfilled the prophecies. He obeyed completely, and he died for our sins. That's why he says it is finished. When Jesus had been perfected, when he was perfected, when he completed this mission, that's when he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, what is it? This is one of the most important questions you could ask. How do I obey Jesus to receive eternal salvation? You might think, what must I do to receive eternal salvation? When you talk about obedience, the obedience often we, in our language today, obedience often uh, makes us think of doing something, some kind of action, some kind of earning. But that's not right at all. Because Jesus never, nowhere, and the Bible never speaks of, uh, the Bible never commands us to obey all the laws in the Bible in order to receive salvation, right? It never says, uh, do all these things. Well, I'm trying to think of a, a verse, because t- let me, I'm off script here. If you do everything perfectly, yeah, you'll be safe. <laughs> but you don't do everything perfectly, right? You cannot do everything to be saved, you must, what must you do? But trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. That is what it means to obey him, to trust in him. We've been looking at this theme of faith throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.3 makes it clear. For we who have believed, for we who have trusted in God, who trust in Jesus as our God, Savior, and King, we are the ones who enter the rest of eternal life. We are the ones who can rest from our work and receive rest from our sin, if you believe. Later on in Hebrews eleven six, it makes it clear, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God trying to earn your way into heaven. You can't do enough good things. It is rooted in faith. Like we've said time and time again, faith is what enters you into the kingdom. Faith in Jesus is what saves you. And then after you are saved, Good works overflow from that salvation. Good works and good deeds and obedience to the law are a result of salvation, not a means to salvation. So Jesus was the perfect one. He completed his mission. He's the only one who can do it perfectly. We cannot. And because he did all these things, God raised him from the dead. And again, he he says this in verse 10. And at his resurrection, he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of of Melchizedek. So in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to worship through song. We're going to be praising God for everything that he's done in our lives. All of last year and our whole lives, what he's done for you, what he's done in Christ for you to save you. And we're also going to do something different. We're going to use this time as a time of response. Because we want to be doers of God's word, not just hearers, right? And so people in the Bible, they publicly responded to what they heard from the gospel. They publicly responded and and they came up and repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Acts 2.41 is just one example. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So there is something special about a public proclamation, a public responding to what you've heard. And so there's four ways you can respond today. Number one, 
Maybe you need to repent and believe. Maybe you've never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus as your priest. Maybe you've trusted in other things. Maybe you trusted in your good works. Maybe you trusted in a worldly, earthly priest. Today, trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And come down today when we're singing. Come down and talk to me about it. I'd love to pray. We'll have other leaders down here at front. Um, some of our deacons, I'd like to you come up here if you're available. Uh, come down here and meet with people to pray if they need, need to. Second, I want you to come down and pray. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus, but you're going through a difficult time, if you just need a special time of prayer, you're, there, there's, there's, there's something in your life that's like, I need prayer. I need someone to pray for me. I need my brothers and sisters to come alongside me. I'd be down here. We'll have other people down here to pray with you. Or maybe just bring one of your friends or family members to pray with you. Come down to the altar and pray. And then number three, this is an invitation to everybody. If you're able and you're willing, I would like everyone to come down and pray for our vision for 2024. Come down to where have the, the, the front pew is open, the stairs, the, the stage is open to come and pray and make a special point of praying for our church in 2024, how we can reach our community, how we can grow deeper into our relationship with God. Would you make this a special moment that this would be a spiritual marker for you to get out of your comfort zone, to do things we don't usually do this year? And then lastly, if you're unable to come down to the front or you're watching online, you can text a prayer request in to me, your text a question, or even text a decision to follow Jesus so I can be praying for you. Get up, meet, if you want to meet up, text that number that's on the screen. So let's stand and sing. Respond to what God has said. Come down and pray as God leads you. Pray for God to move in our church this year. Let me begin us in prayer, then we'll join in song and in prayer. And I'll have some of the deacons and other leaders of the church come down to the front and receive people for prayer. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the sending of your son to die for our sins. God, we need you now. We call out, we cry out to you that we want uh, 2024 to, for this church to be a life-changing opportunity, a life-changing year for us as a church and for our community. God, we want to give you all the glory and praise, and we want people from all around the world to lift up their hands and praise you in spirit and truth. God, would we just be faithful servants to you in that mission? God, just move now. Let your spirit work in our hearts. Let us wholly depend on you for all things. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amazing Grace 343.